Now we don't have any value. Hello, Langdon. Hello, Are you familiar with gender? You know, I've 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 heard of her. I've heard of her. Mm-hmm. I seem it's they seem like a very um famous person because everywhere I look, everybody's talking about gender. That's right. And yeah, I gotta say that you know I've worked very carefully on my social circles. So that no one who I consider an acquaintance, God forbid, a friend, um, has um, bad opinions about gender. However, I could not account for um, Elon Musk buying Twitter and proceeding to do um, a, a bunch of things. One is you know, riling up the entire fucking platform and drawing the exact worst kind of people that we don't want to see on now. And then the one-two combo of also completely destroying the algorithm. So now I'm recommended bullshit nonsense that I don't want to read. I'm familiar with this conundrum. Yeah, I I cannot account for that. So yesterday, of course I'm addicted, so I'm not going to stop using um, Twitter. So yesterday I was perusing the social media platform known as Twitter um, to find a, and I can't sh- convey how hard I'm going to do scare quotes while saying the next word. Like imagine my fingers burning up from how fast I, uh, and how many scare quotes I'm going to do. Marxist talking about how they will delete their account if anyone could give them a quote by Marx or Engels or Lenin about why um, transgender people are, or the transgender uh, people's liberation is a worthwhile communist cause. Now, dear listeners, I want you to know, you can't see, um, obviously I've been silent up until this point largely. Um, That's because... I'm frowning so hard the sides of my mouth are touching the floor. Hard to speak like that. Yeah. So this discourse is like deceptively simple and and complicated at the same time. It's simple because you really don't have to be like a scholar of Marx or any of the above-cited luminaries of um, Marxist thought to even understand why this is nonsense, right? Like, you need to have engaged with the material on a very basic level. Like, you can just read the Communist Manifesto, which is like the bumper sticker version of Marxism. It it was written to be, right? It was written to be a pamphlet. You You just need to read that to understand why it's absolute fucking nonsense, right? Um, however, the problem is deeper than that, right? Like it's easier to um, 
you know, scoff and say, oh, these people are um, idiots, they haven't read Marx, and they don't know what they're talking about, um, and, and that's it, right? And just kind of like hand wave that away and just, you know, scoff and move on. But the problem is actually a bit deeper than that because when you do that, you're basically doing a no to Scotsman fallacy, right? You're saying no true Marxist can be um, transphobic, right? And that sidesteps the problem. The problem is that there are ways, legitimate ways, legitimate in the sense that they're supported by a certain reading of these texts that support such ideas. And um, there are conclusions, transphobic conclusions, which can be drawn from the practices and ideologies that uh, underline or spawn out of uh, Marxism, um, and, and ca which can be used to arrive at transphobic, um, what's the word I'm looking for, realizations, proofs, ways of thought, and so on. And simply just like scoffing at them and saying, oh, they're just like a mistake is not good enough. Um, you need to reckon with why this is happening, right? Um, why and how people use these ideas to arrive at these conclusions. Basically, what I'm saying is you have to reckon with vulgar materialism, right? That's basically what we're talking about here. Um, so for those of you listening who are maybe not as online as we are, <laughs> Uh, God bless God you. Bless. Don't don't join yeah. us. Do not yes. join us. Stay where don't you are. <laughs> you are yeah. safe in the bunker. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, or maybe have not read as deep into this. There are. Um, so, this actually is way before um, Marx, right? <clears throat> There's been a problem for a while now. And this problem actually has plagued humans from multiple directions and, and without uh, connections, right? So it's sprung up independently in multiple schools of thought, which is how the fuck does the physical world and the mental world interact? Like, huh? <laughs> how, how does thought influence things right like just I, I i was actually just having a good discussion with someone about this literally like two days ago to, to more to illustrate how common in like any philosophical space this this topic will come up and using philosophical space is a pretty broad thing because counting literally anything from like stoned teenagers wondering how the world works all the way up to like collegiate professors um passing papers back and forth yeah, it's a it's a real problem, right? Like you can easily make the joke of, you know, like you said, like two teenagers smoking a joint for the first time and going like, whoa, man, what if the blue that I see is not the blue <laughs> that you see or whatever? But 
it's like an honest to God philosophical question that's been hotly debated for a while now. Now, because it's been so, this is a side note, but which is important for people to understand. Um, if the job of philosophy is not necessarily to finally or, or to answer questions finally, right? It's to describe the possible answers. Um, so we've had this. We've been having this discussion for like a little over uh, two millennia now. And we're, we're pretty good at like describing the different positions. And there are a few positions which everybody agrees are pretty stupid. Oh, I mean, I'm being, <laughs> I'm being too harsh. Not stupid, but like very hard to support. So for example, on one end of the spectrum, um, there's something like uh, what Berkeley um, says, Sc- Scottish philosopher, who was like, well, that's not a problem. George Berkeley, by the way. Irish, sorry, not Scottish. He's Irish. Um, was Irish. He's dead. So I can say he was Scottish. No one cares. Um, he was like, well, that's not a problem because material things don't actually exist. Um, like, it's it's all thought. right? Everything is an idea. Okay. Pretty odd. And even if you give it the light of day, trust me, I, I have a BN philosophy. Like, even if you spend an entire semester uh, reading his stuff and critiquing it seriously, it's like, it doesn't get any better. But then that kind of like opinion is not very popular, right? Especially not with people who are not philosophers. Right? Like you, you don't walk around and you hear people saying, oh, everything's an idea. Um, but the either um, side of the equation is sadly very popular. And it is that everything is a material. Um, there is no problem between the interaction of matter and thought because there is no thought. Um, everything is material. Now, you know these um, ideas maybe as, you know, love is just a set of chemical reactions, man. You don't actually love this person, right? It's just like uh, eons of evolution telling you that they will, you know, bear your children well or... Uh, provide you with uh, sufficient amounts of protein and, and all that nonsense. We even have the uh, the recent manifestation of this with your cat doesn't actually love you. Oh my god, it's so stupid, man. It's so fucking dumb. <laughs> it's so stupid. So, geez. And, and we also have a lot of other idiots um, saying this. This is also what's behind, funnily enough, he doesn't even understand it, but it's also what's behind Jordan Peterson's like whole makeup um routine where he talks about how women wear makeup to like accentuate the features of their body so that they attract a mate or whatever it's funny he doesn't understand that because all of his other shit is like mystical and spiritualist but then he's so caught up in the cultural wars that he inadvertently has turned into a materialist which is fucking hilarious Um, (laughs) but then there are oh i hate him yeah, no, he's bad. He's a bad <laughs> person. Um, yeah, it, very funny though. Very funny that day where he posted like the Chinese dick milking farm. <laughs> that shit was um, so goddamn funny. <laughs> as if it was a real thing. I like um, how everyone, including people on his side, were trying to be like, "No, Jordan, no, 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 no. <laughs> Mister Peterson, please." Um, the problem is that there are also these vulgar materialists on the left. And it's kind of easy to see how you get there, right? Like you read Marx and, well, you read certain 
parts of Marx, um, like the uh, capital and the Gundrisse and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, cool. The, everything that exists is just economical relations, right? It's it's just things being moved around in different ways and different forms of control of um, capital and material issues are all that exists, right? And, and that is the only thing that we need to concern ourselves with. And then stuff like, and that's where you get ideas like poetry is bourgeoisie, right? Um, working class people don't read poetry because working class people are concerned only with material issues. The only people who read bourgeoisie are the filthy idealists of the middle class and above who, you know, um, make up ideas and uh, sensations to uh, justify their decadent way of life. The thing is, if you then continue to read Marx, <laughs> um, you find out that that's not at all what Marx said ever, and that his theory kind of moves um, past that. Not to mention the fact that, uh, let's brace yourselves, I'm going to drop a knowledge bomb on you now are you, are you ready for this i'm ready my body is fucking ready marx existed as a person what what the y- fuck yeah he was a guy i and, what the fuck yeah and he um fell in love and would read poetry and would listen to no! music no! no! Stop! Stop! No! Stop, telling me. <laughs> <laughs> stop! Stop telling me the facts. Um, <laughs> and then, lastly, before we dive into the actual ideology, like another it's truth bomb, Marx didn't write about all the things that will ever exist. Now that one, I'm not understanding. What do you mean? Are you saying there are things? That he didn't write about that are also real? Yeah. That can't be true. Mm-hmm. Things will come into existence in the future, which Marx did not cover in his writings. I am going to kill myself. Yeah, I know. It's tough. You'll be okay, though. You, 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 you will work through this. So... Given those facts, what 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 are we supposed to do <laughs> as people who want to be materialists, but also understand that there are other things out there? And again, when I say this is like an age-old problem, I mean like Socrates-level uh, problem, right? Uh, famously, Socrates said that man is a demon with the cool spelling, the I-E, right? Daemon, or however you want to say it. It's demon. You should say demon. Um, We're we're half trapped in the material world of of mortals, but have half of our existence in the immortal realm of the gods, by which he meant, you know, we eat and, and we're sick and we have like desires that are completely physical but we can also you know read poetry and go see a play and those things affect us um deeply and we can make decisions based on our emotions and our thoughts even though they're not necessarily um, rational or, or make a lot of sense 
So that's kind of the problem that the real time solve. Now, the, the vulgar materialist solution is you are wrong. None of this exists. <laughs> Everything that exists is just material relations. And like, I have a lot of things you could you could say to that and like argue from a philosophical perspective, but I find myself more and more gravitating to the solution of if that's true, then I'm going to kill myself. Because why live? Right? Like, why be alive? If everything is like a material condition and everything else is an illusion, do you not understand how that sounds like a capitalist talking? Do you not understand how, like, that's what the factory owner wants you to think? And I'm, I don't mean the actual factory owner. I mean the people who are channeling the archetype of the factory owner. That's what they want you to think. Because then you don't need time to, like, rest more than what's needed to replenish your, your... Yeah, do your job, right? Like, replenish your energy so you could go to the factory and do your job. And you know what the problem is? And, and this is where these things get real. A large section of the USSR thought that way about people and reduced millions and millions of people into their labor force. And that is a problem. It was a problem back then. Like, read shit about that period. It was a problem. And people were very often reduced to their, like the hours of labor that they could output. And it's a problem today. When... Um, uh, developing uh, communist and, and socialist countries are unable to meet the um, varied and complex needs of their citizens and that's a big reason of why these regimes fail because they are so you know, focused on the revolutionary um, and again I'm not criticizing them, it's a very hard thing to do which I, would, I don't have the tools to do right? but that's their failure, they don't understand when they need to move out of that area and you know the the places that have succeeded succeeded by doing that like like cuba right where at some point they were like the revolution is over and now we need to live right we need to think about um the entirety of a person so these problems are not mere like philosophical quibbles these are deep problems that run through our movement, and worse, they infect the vision that we have of success. And that's a major problem on the left, especially the authoritarian left, um, which again, I consider myself part of, right? Like, I, I call myself a Marxist-Leninist, but a lot of these people, you ask them, how does it look like when we win? And ev all they can describe sounds fucking miserable. Yeah, they, miserable. they're, we wind up, this is, so we see, uh, trying to loop back um one of my biggest pet peeves i think it's a big pet peeve of anyone who's read anything by the ccru and really treasured it and really studied it is we see the citation of a couple essays almost always done in bad faith by people who can't read one is obviously exiting the vampire castle that's a very insightful essay that is used almost singularly wrong the one i want to talk about though is capitalist realism um, which in which Fisher talks about specifically 
how capitalism has constrained our imagination for what life even can be or what life under communism would look like. And this is exactly the problem that we're talking about here, where you describe people that are currently enmeshed within capitalism to describe the world beyond it. And they literally cannot. They describe exactly the conditions that communism is built and was historically built to be a rejection of and to be a revolution against. Um, And on one hand, this is totally understandable. The fact that our imaginations have been attenuated by the world in which we live and we have to give birth to the world that we want to see uh, come into being uh, paraphrasing Gramsci there, um, very normal. That That's exactly what we would expect. But then you also kind of require a level of intellectual humility to acknowledge, I am not capable of producing the vision of the world that will be. And there's another failure that we wind up seeing there is that people have... Um, To speak in sort of layman terms, it's like a weird manifestation of the Dunning-Kruger effect where people have read enough theory and have existed in the world to the point where they've convinced themselves that this very real problem that we've known is real, like Engels talks about it in Socialism, Utopian, or Scientific, of the reality of like, he he speaks semi-fondly of utopians there. He's not... He doesn't like where they wind up landing, but he li- he likes the spirit of like, okay, you care about the future of the world. And one of the main theses of that text is, but we can't, we can't know what that will look like. We only know about today. We only know about the struggles of today. So just focus on this for, to make the hope for the future. And we wind up seeing basically everyone del- deliberately misunderstood. This loops back to the the thing that you said to open us with of people being like, can you can you cite anything from Marx or Engels about this? And it's like, yes, you you dumb fuck, because I've <laughs> I can read. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and also like, so I, I I I seriously agree with everything you said, and and actually I would encourage people if the, if you don't want to read capitalist realism, and by the way, hot take, I don't think it's a there's good ideas in that book, but the book itself I don't think is well written. Um, it definitely needed further drafts and so when people like us like me or Eden or Gareth um, talk about the tragedy of losing Mark Fisher it's partly because he had a lot of really great ideas that definitely would have gotten further refinement over time and we don't get to see what that looks like so the capitalist realism being a very much one of those where it's like this is a great first draft but it's also a first draft yeah, and there's also a post by Mark Fisher that I would encourage people to read. It's still online, and you can access it. Um, it's called it's on K-Punk, um, his blog. It's called "Abandon Hope: Summer Is Coming." Um, he he wrote this. Um, it's a, it's around Corbin. Fisher liked Corbin uh, mostly. I also like Corbin mostly. I think he's a good guy. He has good ideas. Um, he he wrote this around like this is pre-Brexit. Uh, well, pre-full Brexit, as they say. And it summarizes a lot of the um, ideas in, in capitalist realism. But it also means, and, and after this, um, we'll tie it back to the struggle of transgender people and, and queer people in general. Um, this is this is what it says. Uh, he says, sorry. Um, 
the Tories quickly abandoned the big society after the 2010 campaign, but the concept did actually point to what neoliberal culture has corroded, the space between individuals and their families, and the state. In addition to its clunky and uncommunicative name, the problem with the big society was that in the Tories' hands, it was a transparent ruse to dismantle the welfare state. To re-socialize a culture that has been individualized to the extent that England has, demand, has demands massive resources, it requires time and energy, the very things that capital stri- strips us of most thoroughly. Red wealth is the collective capacity to produce, care, and enjoy. This is red plenty. We and they have had it wrong for a while. It is not that we are anti-capitalist. It is that capitalism, with all its visored cops, its tear gas, all the theological niceties of its economics, is set up to block red plenty. The attack on capital has to be fundamentally based on the simple insight that, far from being about wealth creation, capital necessarily and always blocks our access to this common wealth. Everything for everyone, all of us first. Okay? All of us, all of us, every single worker. So one of the things that these fucking assholes get so wrong, by the way, this is like two of the best paragraphs ever written on this topic because Mark Fisher was a fucking genius. Um, they say, well, uh, you know, they push up the the glasses like Shinji's father on, on the Hegelion. Um, <laughs> fucking gendo like, ass. Well, <laughs> actually... Transgender people make up less than 0.8% of the working class. Okay, smartass, take 0.8% and multiply it by the number of people on the planet. That's like hundreds of millions of people or tens of millions of people. That's a lot of people. And even if it wasn't, all of us, not some of us, Right? Like, I didn't think communism was suddenly a fucking game of picking who gets to enjoy uh, the fruits of plenty. I didn't read the goddamn Communist Manifesto as as a kid having a political awakening and go, wow, I'm really inspired to free exactly 51% of the populace. That's not (laughs) that's not the fucking dream. Like, are you stupid? I mean, we even run Uh, into this. This is how we kind of know this is in part a a grift, because we'll see people bring up a very fair point, which is that if you don't strive for the um, liberation of even things like um, conservative people in your in your spaces, even people that are um, uh, even people that are men under patriarchy, even people that are white under white supremacy, if your struggle doesn't include the, these groups that a lay person would go, okay, so that's what we're struggling against. You have to at some point go, no, I'm not struggling against people. I'm struggling against systems and modes of thought in order to transform people because everyone is worth being saved. And we then start going, the materialist in us is supposed to go, what has made these people abandon their common humanity and how can we attack that and seeing capital and capitalism as one of the primary engines of that? Um and they'll they'll correctly cite that part, and then they'll get up to the topic of trans people, 
and suddenly this is a Western neoliberal bourgeois ideology that's used to disrupt uh, great nations across the planet. And it's yeah. So I'd hand wave them if I didn't loathe them so much. Um, fuck you, yeah. Communist Party of the United Kingdom. Yeah, and, and fuck you, MAGA communists in in the U.S. Jesus so, Christ. To to bring it all together, and like I think the, the the strongest nail in the coffin of this absurd conversation is Marx and Engels and Lenin and, and all this theory does not stop with the means of production. That is not the only category. That is the base. Remember, base, superstructure, pretty simple mm-hmm. stuff, pretty basic stuff. There are also relations of production, right? That is the way in which the society, right, um, organizes access not only to the means of production, but also social and um, normative rules, right? Now, that's still materialist because social relations, what Foucault, who, by the way, was a Marxist, you goddamn idiots. And this whole Foucault versus Marx discussion is so stupid. Foucault was a Marxist. Okay? There are so Foucault. many critiques of Foucault that are well-grounded and useful, and people pick the most fucking jackass, dipshit yeah. things to say. <laughs> yeah. So Foucault called the those r- relations of um, production power, right? Power organizes it dictates the rules by which material things like people, resources, knowledge, uh, money, and so on and so forth, sex, biology, things which exist, material things, it organizes them. Therefore, analyzing social relations, aka power, can be done materialistically instead of saying things like the liberals hate um, free expression of sexuality because they read it in the Bible or because they um, they hate the idea of it we can talk about the actual structures of power which benefit from the limitation of sexuality the actual material conditions under which sexuality is girdled and controlled and limited, we analyze these things materially. Now, gender is a social relation. It is a configuration of power. You can't do gender alone in a room. It doesn't work. Okay? The reason that humans have gender and not just sex is because we are social animals remember that's what separates us from all those other species right we are social animals we have complex social structures one of them is gender when people say gender is a social construct they don't mean and therefore it's irrelevant or not real no they mean the opposite because it's a social construct it's powerful and important and real and we need to talk about it So, 
if gender is a social relation and we can think about social relations materialistically, we can think about gender materialistically. And we can talk about transgender people and queer people and all the magnificent and wonderful and beautiful ways that humans have to express their gender in a material Marxist way. And you know what happens when you do that? You realize that the workers' movement and the transgender movement are one and the same. Now, guess this is what? shocking yeah, to yeah. absolutely zero literate people. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Because, of course it is. Because when you look at the majority of transgender people and the majority of queer people, they are working class, just like the majority of any group on the planet, because the majority of people are working class. That's the whole fucking point, you goddamn MAGA idiots. So, the, that is the only conclusion, the only material conclusion of the gender discussion is that people should be free to express their gender in any way they would like. Any way. You don't even need the caveat of as long as they don't hurt other people because gender doesn't hurt anyone. Gender expression does not hurt people. There are things which can hurt people that might be tied to their gender expression, like warping someone else's perception of gender to serve your own cause. But gender expression itself is not something that is able to hurt people. Okay? We wind, we... Up, we wind up seeing yeah. as well a thing that um, makes, makes me sick in a really complex way. Um, and I, I, I mean like brought near to like physical sickness. Um, we see a level of profound uh, intellectual cowardice on the part of these people. Um, these, these like turfy communist types. Um, one of their statements is, it's a lot of what they're saying is fundamentally that the tools of analysis they have for breaking down societal relations um, rely on certain structures like the existence of capitalism. They rely on the existence of patriarchy, especially a lay understanding of patriarchy, um, which, which to be fair, these are real structures. They have real material consequence. They arise from real material substrates, but they ignore um, two things. One, uh, as much as they may turn their nose up at someone like Deleuze, again, we can point back to Engels, his whole point about scientific, uh, scientific socialism. And the whole point of a historical materialist dialectic is that the conditions change over time. Like communism isn't built in response to being a feudal society. It's built in response to industrial pressures. Now, to be fair, the Soviet Revolution taught us that it doesn't only have to be um, agrarian or industrial conditions, but if anything, the combination of those two great events, the writing of the capital and then the successful communist revolution, as well as the failed communist revolution that happened like seven years prior, um, should indicate, okay, the one through line is that 
All we can do is respond to the conditions that are here. We can look backward to learn things, but the past is not the present. Those are not the conditions of now. Funnily enough, you know who actually fucking said that? Karl fucking Marx. Um, (laughs) But ignoring that, even if we assume that they're correct, that uh, transness didn't exist prior to a certain cultural point, which... To not to be fair to them, but if you look at uh, the history of queerness and the history expression of queerness, gender variance absolutely existed prior. But the way in which we've constructed transness is relatively new. But that's not invalidating. Lots of things are culturally relatively new. We would no Marxist would say that the relation of say the the um, material self to the digital self is not worth class analysis and is not worth class struggle. That's brand fucking new. Like, no one would say that. That's insane. So even if transness was brand new, which again, it's not, the, the model of it is relatively new, but the substrate that it's responding to, which I'll get to in a second, very much not new, that doesn't invalidate it for any of these struggles. It shows a profound level of intellectual cowardice. And to be frank and to be fucking blunt, plain fucking stupidity. That their their tools, they have acknowledged passively, their tools are not strong enough to grapple with the world as it is. They can only grapple with the world as it was. In this way, they're no better than any lay reactionary. The whole fundament of reactionary politics and where it gets its name is it is a response to the now in an attempt to return to, in some fashion, the then. That you are rejecting presentness and you're rejecting futurity with, to be fair, all the big question marks that come with that. There's We were talking before we uh, hit record on this that both Eden and I are going through different life stuff right now. Shocker, we're living and we're going through life stuff. And there is a level of anxiety that comes with that because the fu- the uncertainty of the future naturally breeds a level of anxiety. But the, the person who is not a coward, and this is beyond politics, this is more a statement of like the profundity of will. If you are not a coward, on some level, you go, well, this is scary. I have to embrace it though because this is the fucking world I live in. It's, we then hit the secondary point of they, they pretend as though there is no biological substrate, which I'm not going to bore you with all the lectures. Google it. There is a, there's a fucking lot (laughs) of historically (laughs) documented biological substrate to gender variance in all of its modes. And at that point, if they can acknowledge the scientific literature, if they can acknowledge all this kind of stuff. At that point, they're quibbling over pronoun usage because they don't like how that would affect their anti-patriarchal analytical models. Fuck you. Yeah. So to close this uh, discussion off, I want to play some music. And you might be able to tell that we're both sort of angry because, you know, our friends are being killed. Um I think that would make everyone angry. And yeah. while our friends are being killed, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of like prevaricating, hand wringing online people who dare to call themselves Marxists that, that think that it's not a good thing, but I can understand where they're coming from and all that fucking nonsense. So I want to play some really angry music. And if you've been like in the market for extremely angry music in the past few months, 
you um, owe it to yourself to not miss out on trespasser. Trespasser uh, come to us from Sweden and they play a kind of super explicit, super aggressive, um, blackened uh, metal with a lot of punk elements and, and hardcore and thrash and, and stuff like that. And they're also outspoken anarchists um, and, and leftists. Um, so I think they'll fit right in and they're kind of like buzzsaw, anti-establishment, working class metal is, is exactly what we need. And I'm going to play to you, check out the name of this track, um, Holocaustus or the justification and affirmation of hierarchical order by the symbolism of emulations. That, that's what we're going to listen to now. Um, uh, enjoy. Before we press play, uh, yeah. hi, Geetha. Charlie says hello. Nice. <laughs> so, Holocaustus, Traspasso. See you on the other side.
cool. Okay. We got Dope that band. awful system. Yes. We uh, we actually that. covered them on my Consequence of Sound column. Um, on oh, account, sick. Like, they weren't, I didn't, I couldn't come up with anything, like, really good to say about it, because it, it lives really close to that, like, really buzzsaw-y, like, second-wave black metal feel, which I like, but it's, it's hard for me to, like, um, have thoughts worth sharing about it and thankfully um my co-writer on that column colin was like oh i fucking got it like no i can so (laughs) i also it's weird over the past like year or so i've come into contact with a bunch of people who know members of that band they're all nothing but sweet people i've literally heard nothing but really wonderful stuff about all of them that usually tends to be um the case so now we're going to uh, do something that we don't usually do, which is speak about an author twice. We've done it on the on the cast a few times. There's like two Philip K. Dick episodes, right? I mean, it's Philip fucking K. Dick, right? So yeah, um, he's he's like a god to us. <laughs> yeah, and, and and there might be like one or two more. But if we're going to break our habit and talk about certain author twice, you know that it's going to be Brian Catling. So, oh my weird fucked can, up king. Yeah, rest in peace. Um, <laughs> so, if you've been living under a rock, Brian Catling is the author of the Vore trilogy, which we have covered here um, extensively on the cast. But he was also um, a sculptor, a poet, a novelist, a filmmaker, a performance artist, a choreographer, and, and a bunch of other stuff. He unfortunately passed away last year. Um, from cancer cancer is awful and yeah it sucks he had like really rare cancer um which is uh yeah a damn shame i'm gonna say um, the classic thing that one says when someone dies from cancer which is fuck cancer um, fuck cancer yeah uh there <laughs> is said to be um there's one book i think which is going to be published posthumously at least i caught like uh his publishing house share a cover um but in 2021 he wrote um hollow in 2020 he wrote monkey which i've yet to read and is one of my uh, next books and in 2019 he wrote earwig um which the spectator called a cold cool stiletto of a book which is a very good way to describe this book earwig is a short um yeah vol was not only long in the sense of <laughs> the number of pages, but also in how hard it was to read. Um, it was psychically of... long. <laughs> exactly. It's it's like those nightmares where the corridor keeps going, right? Um, you think you're Oh, fuck, I've been skinnamarinked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been skinnamarinked by the fall, by the, the by Eden. Um, not me, the, the actual place. <laughs> the, the Read garden. the whole if you haven't and you don't know. Oh, sorry. They call it Slender Like a Stiletto, a book full of sadness, madness, and badness. That's even better. So Earwig is a short little book. But if you think that it's nicer, then you are wrong. <laughs> um, essentially, Earwig is a classic uh, tale of Satan. Um, and Satan, you know, messing around with bad people and punishing them. Specifically in this case, the bad person 
is also a big weirdo, just like we like over here on Death Sentence. Um, Albert Schelling. Shell- um, ever since Albert was young, he had really good uh, hearing. Um, and also, he looks kind of like a bug. He has like this elongated nose. Again, he's human, right? But he looks like a bug and he has these big ears and his hearing is sensitive. So his dad decided to taunt him and call him Earwig. Um, <laughs> Albert was used in World War One to scout out artillery positions with his hearing. And actually, he was the only one whose hearing was good enough to hear the report of the cannon firing so that he could plug up his ears before the shell exploded. Everyone else had really good hearing, but not as good as him, so the explosion of the shells blew out their brains. Yeah, Brian Catling. Um, Now Albert is a washed-up old man, discarded, right? Like most veterans from uh, the two great wars. Um, And he lives in uh, Liege, which is interesting because it kind of continues Catling's interest in Northern Europe, or the hollow continues it, right? The hollow is like kind of Dutch focused, um, focused on a lot of um, Hieronymus Bosch's paintings and, and scenery and so on. And here we're in um, Liege. And Albert <clears throat> has been assigned a very weird job, which is to babysit uh, Mia, um, a, a teen, and I'm talking about 13, right? Like a young uh, woman, a young girl who... <clears throat> Brian Catling, everybody's ready. You all know what to expect. Um, has no teeth. Uh, but so that she does have teeth um, for some reason, uh, and, and, and now you should actually brace yourself, uh, her spit is frozen in a refrigerator, uh, filed down into like a fang sort of shape, and then installed into these... Um, metal casings that she has in her mouth instead of her teeth. Thank you, Brian Caitlin. Yes. By the way, why is never (laughs) answered? If you've read the vol, remember the sub storyline where uh, the guys who take care of Ishmael who run the the robots, we never see them, right? They only call the caretakers on the phone and they're never explained or seen. And when they do catch a glimpse of them. They're like deconstructed uh, objects floating and there's like music and their motives are never explained. So it's the same kind of vibe. There's some sort of rich person or a group of individuals or entity or something like that on the phone which has tasked Albert with guarding um, Mia and he gets paid by them and finally his biggest payday is about to arrive because it's time to take Mia on the train uh, to the um, to a hospital that can something. It's not not very clear what is going to happen um, at this um, hospital, but they're going to um, you know fix her. And once Albert completes the journey and escorts her uh, from the train or from the apartment that they live in to the train, from the train to the hospital. He will be paid a copious sum of money and he will be able to um, retire. Of course, that doesn't happen. (laughs) 
um, Albert is a bad guy. And this is where the cattling of it all uh, really kicks in. There's the surface level, and there's everything that's happening beneath it. So on the surface, Albert is bad in the sense that he's just like cantankerous and um, impatient and uh, kind of... Um, also, the relationship between him and Mia is kind of fucked up. Like, he maybe is attracted to her. He eavesdrops on her when she's in the bathroom. And the, the whole relationship is, like, messed up. But then there are hints throughout the book that Albert is a completely unreliable narrator of his own life to himself as well. He is kind of, like, erased and um, is in denial about his past, and it's possible that he killed his wife. Um, there's a few memories of him potentially burning her and then forgetting that she ever existed and telling himself a story about how he's always been alone. And in general, he has a history of violence towards women. Now, what happens to people in horror stories, and this is a horror story, by the way, um, to people who are violent against um, innocents, Satan shows up um, to play. And that's what happens here. Uh, Satan, oh, of course, he's not called Satan, right? He's called the Stranger, right? Makes an appearance in Ometro, um, Albert's uh, local pub. And through a fucked up, and one of the best scenes that Brian Catling has ever written, um, does this like kind of like body swapping thing and causes um, Albert to deface and permanently scar Celeste, one of the waitresses in the bar. Um, and so, uh, I'm wondering if I want to spoil the end. Uh, I say we go for it. Um, yeah. The book, the without, before we say it, the ending will not. Um, will not shock you in as much as once you realize you're reading a Brian Caitlin book and also you know the form, you're like, oh, okay. The, the specifics you will not anticipate, but the uh, the yeah. shape of it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how that yeah. that's how this ends, yeah. So it, it ends with Celeste killing him, right? Um, she, she hunts him down. By the way, as she is escaping from her own capital, and this is one of my favorite characters in this book and, and by Caitlin, We'll talk about that in a second. She escapes from her capital and she goes to that hospital and she tracks um, Albert down and she kills him right, as revenge for his defacing. Now, this is the first level in which, I'll say it differently, the, one of the best things about Irwig is how well-versed Catling is in the tropes of the genre. Right? Like, he knows so well how to build sin, guilt, regret, punishment, redemption to the tropes of the genre, right? So think about Edgar Allan Poe, um, Bulgakov, right? Master and Margarita is obviously like haunting this story, right? Um, Lolita, in a sense, as well. Dostoevsky, all these like classic, for a reason, stories about redemption and crime and 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 uh, I almost said crime and punishment. I almost said it, Langdon. Um, that would have made me too powerful. You can't. Yeah. You can't give me a taste. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> the, the, like the agility in which Catling plays with the tropes here and like builds it up to the extent of exactly what you said. You see everything that's coming, but it's still so delicious to read it because it's a master executing the form, right? And and injecting it with his own content. Actually, I don't know how have... this book was for you. So, so tell me a bit more about how you feel about Irwig. So, I. It's worth so Eden and I have been going back and forth talking about different Brian Caitlin books. There is a very high likelihood we will cover more of his stuff because we we both really adore the guy, um, and Gareth does too. It's just like a total fucking hand and glove for what we do. Um, I tend to think about Earwig in relation to his body of work, so it feels like so obviously. Um, for people who know about Brian Caitlin, he spent the vast majority of his life doing like performance art and sculpture and stuff like that. And occasionally doing poetry, mostly the poetry would arrive during, arise during performance art and it would like get scattered collections or publication. Um, but he didn't write prose like really at all outside of the mixed media format of performance art, which if you get really deep into it, it's kind of sort of a play. It's kind of sort of whatever. He didn't write a novel, at least, until the Vore trilogy. And that famously took him, like, he writes the first one. And then I think there was like a five or seven year gap or something like that. Yeah. The exact amount doesn't matter. But from the second book forward, he just started pounding out books in very much the way that... um. Terrence Malick, the filmmaker, is in the midst of right now. And it feel, in retrospect, it's the fairly obvious thing if someone gets really hard news about, like, you don't have long to live. Like, you have a matter of years now, and it's a handful of years. And it's like something unlocked in him. And once he got the vor out, um, it's hard for me to differentiate in certain strong ways things like Earwig or things like Hollow, or he has another book, uh, you said the name of it earlier and I can't remember it right now. Um, got blown out of my brain. Um, of this massive virtuosic outpouring. Like, if if the Vore trilogy was him doing a very considered and very deliberately crafted thing, a very elliptical but still ultimately like deeply crafted thing, everything after feels like him at play. Like the moment where someone who is a master of language, who's a master of form, like in this, he shows a profound level of competency. Like there's, there's shades of Lolita in here, um, thinking not just the plot, but also more like the, the prosaic elements of like yeah. Nabokov. Like he, he, he has that same level of mastery of wordplay um, that, that Nabokov has in here. There's elements of, of Dickens with the looking at like grotesques and the looking at the social realism of grotesques. Um, but like the social image of Dickens, not so much necessarily always the literal version, but like the way that we imagine these scrunched up, fucked up little guys in a Charles Dickens story. There's chunks of this that feel like if I had to pick one book of his that leans, lives closest to like a young adult book, it would be this one and not young adult in, in the sense of like the social image, but in the way that like a wizard of earth sea or, um, uh, what's the book series that opens with, that has uh, a wind in the door as part of it. What's the first book in that? Oh, uh, damn. I know what you're talking about. 
by by Langel, Madeleine Langel. Uh, yeah. Um, Wrinkle, Wrinkle in time. time. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it it has like that kind of that kind of feel, or like um, the Paralandria books by C.S. Lewis. Hot, not so hot take. Those are his best books. Um, if you had to pick his weird Christian allegorical shit. Um, but like it, it has that same level of effervescent weirdness, but like intense approachability. He then, the thing that I'm going to say his name, he does the, that Joycean thing where like he has a pay, <laughs> he has a single page where he's repeating the same phrase over and over for a bit. Um, just these like. So can I, can I read the paragraph? Oh yeah. Because I, I really agree with what you just said. And Earwig is such like abstract. It's like a slippery book, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of it is like leash and in the snow and, and describing a lot of light. And color, by the way, plays a big part of it, which is interesting. Man, I could talk for hours about this book. But let, let me read a paragraph. And then I'll use that maybe to talk about color and, and hearing and senses and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, th- this is when my favorite part of the book is when Brian Catling describes Ometro for the first time, the bar where Albert um, is, is a local. Um, just because I, I've had those bars in my life, right? And he does such a good job of, of describing it. So here we go. Many in the Sunday market had left before dawn and trudged miles to be there. Some came out of the tangled Ardennes escaping the drudgery of thankless labor in small inbred fields of stubborn family crops. They brought baskets of this or a rucksack of that in the hope of a trade for a good morning's drinking. A chance to dance and talk and fuck out of the mud of their home patch. The dance and the market were the alibis of desire. What the fuck, man? What the fuck? That is so good. Sorry, I'm sorry. Objects and voices pawing at each other swelling the passions of human meeting. To some extent, the trade was incidental, only helping to curate a vast nomadic museum of history and food that cherished the odd at its center. There is always a gritty pearl compressed by such life, a transmutation hutch where fiction grows in direct proportion to the dwindling of fact. Or Metro was such a gem. There, it was impossible to imagine a fiction larger than the incident occurring at the next table. Alice and the Red Queen could petit déjeuner there. Their prime ugliness and alienation would be relished, their quest for the impossible expanded. What the hell? Like, I'm I'm speechless. It, there's, it, this is... This is sort of what I mean by like the there's some critiques of this uh, book that float around um, on the most ignominious and anti-literate website of Earth. That's Goodreads. Um, Bad website. Don't use it. (laughs) Don't use it even to chart your own books. Don't give them traffic. I hate Goodreads with all my heart. Goodreads. This is this is a this is a deep cut for people in the know. Goodreads is the rate your music for books. Um, Yeah. Uh, that's going to confuse a certain chunk of people and make mad a certain other chunk, but I'm right. Um, they complained about this book being aimless and that's a little bit true, but clearly misses the, the, like it clearly misses the joy of the book. Like on, on a literal end, it's not aimless. It, the, the plot is explained 
pretty clearly and the plot does execute itself um, without too many crazy twists. If you disregard the language, which God, why would you? But if you did, the, the book isn't moving in terribly abstract ways. It's, it's, it's hitting certain plot beats and tells you about them ahead of time. Um, but it misses exactly like, this is one of those guys where I read him and I race off to go right. Like it takes me, yeah. a, it like I would read. Um, so my normal process for reading is I'll go to a cafe and I'll have some records on my phone, some new ones, some old ones, just things that I really want to dig into. I'll get myself a nice big latte. I'll throw my headphones on and I'll read to different kinds of music. Um, and this is exactly the kind of book where I would hit like 20 pages in and I'd immediately like race off to my car to go drive back home because, or sometimes I just whip out my phone and start drafting immediately right there because it starts burning in my brain. This like, it's hard to even hear, let me rephrase that. It's hard, especially to hear vocalized a paragraph like the one that you just said and not immediately want to be like Eden press pause. I have to like, I have to jot down some lines real quick. Um, <laughs> anyone who's written before or done really anything creative will know that feeling that like the, the burning coal inside of your brain or that sense of like interior lightning where you're like, I have to go make something right fucking now. Doesn't matter if so, it's with a guitar or a paintbrush. And it's, you can feel that bleeding out of this book. Like that's where yeah. I don't, I don't care about the fucking plot. Although it, 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 it's neat. So take that euphemistically. It's like every fucking page is a goddamn feast. And again, yeah, and it's I like think... once, once the Vor uncapped him and he no longer had to live by like fairly in, internally strenuous, um, religious symbology to make this like much more esoteric and hermeticist work. Once he could just tell a tale, it's like it just blasts out of him. Like, oh, I get them all. I'm fucking thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the other one of the, I really agree with that. And, and the next topic I want to talk about is, as I alluded to, is um, the senses and how they're used in this book. One of the ways in which he lets this out of him, but also draws you in, is by doing something really clever. So when Gareth and I, um, spoke about fuck. What's that book called? With the weird objects and the spaceship. God damn. As I was say, that's that's like me. most of the books we fucking read. That's not that's not narrowing <laughs> it down at all. Weird objects weird and one. a spaceship. Yeah, it's that's. <laughs> oh, that's crazy! Them. I can't fucking. We read something like that. That's nuts. The employees. What? The employees. The employees <laughs> by Evan. I spoke there about uh, um, how it writes about uh, smell, which is not really a sense that is usually written about. And Catling does something interesting on this book as well because the protagonist has um, an acute and overdeveloped sense of hearing. Now, anybody who's listening to this and has read The Vol or has um, heard us talking about it knows how important sight is to Brian Catling, right? Um, he has all the stuff in, in The Vol with blindness and the camera obscura and, and all of that stuff. And here... Does that same kind of um, emphasis, but on hearing, and it's really interesting how he looks at hearing as this like very primal and unsophisticated sort of sense, but nonetheless one which um, 
makes its own inventory of the world. So, so let me read to you um, a paragraph and then another one which shows the opposite. The truth was that he had never really trusted his eyes. He knew they played tricks. His mother had convinced him that he had not seen any of the brutal things his father had done. Pause. Of course, Albert's father also assaulted his mother and him, but this is also bleeding into Albert's memory of himself, right? And the horrible things that he did to his wife. This had crippled his visual memory and stunted all imagination attached to sight. But meanwhile, his hearing stayed intact and grew in seclusion, making a nest of remembrance from twisted sticks sticks of shouts, twigs of cries, and feathers of sobs. Right? So this idea of like hearing as this like primal, isolated, low-level sense that nonetheless creates this um, vision of the world. But then the contrast, the opposite, is how Catling describes the world to us. So we get a lot more than the protagonist. The protagonist has bad eyesight, but we get all this rich color. Listen to this paragraph about a terrain and think about the scene from Snowpiercer with the shadow and the light where they fight in the darkness. So Brian Catling does this with words. He doesn't need a movie, okay? Then the bright light at the other end of the tunnel found the lip of its entrance and sped into its hollow, casting a shadow of undark before it. Celeste felt anxiety lift and opened her eyes into the carriage as dawn arrived. The children also found their parents and hugged them tightly. The speeding tubular dawn illuminated the silhouettes of the men who had been shouting in the dark. So good. And the entire book is filled with this stuff, like color, light, how light reflects from snow. And, and suddenly you understand that what he's doing is showing you everything that Albert cannot see, that the protagonist relies only on his hearing to experience. And that's why he's able to manipulate Mia. That's why he's able to be cruel to Celeste. That's why he's able to kill his wife. Right? He, he sees the world... It's stunted, right? It's like a blunt, uh, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, like a blur, sorry, a blur of, of a shape where we see all this richness conveyed to us through Catling's words. The protagonist sees this uh, stunted, inaccessible version of reality, which allows him to be callous and cool and violent and uh, impatient and so on, which is a really smart way to uh, write about um, you know, something happening from a, a perspective that is inaccessible to the protagonist. It's also this really, so one thing that Caitlin really loves is a very Dickensian usage of physiognomy, um, yeah. which without troubling you with too many details can often be quite problematic with sort of the ties of physical disability or mental disability with wickedness. However, one thing that I really love about his work, and this is something that we see actually mirrored on a lot of works of strangeness, is you have complex physiognomies because you have uh, the, the girl who is no less um, of a grotesque, like not that I find her grotesque, but the, the literary object of a grotesque. 
um, but is deeply noble. Um, whole book through, she doesn't really have like wickedness in her or evil in her. So it makes it pretty clear that um, he's he's doing slightly more complex stuff than just like, oh, if you have some kind of disability, that's because uh, God knows of your sin. <laughs> um, uh, and it winds up creating um, this wonderful sense of literary distance. Like it, it's the thing that, that Eden was talking about that only really hits you at a certain point through the book of you're following Alfred, but this is not a book inside Alfred's head. You are witnessing Alfred. Albert. Um, Albert. Albert, sorry. Ugh, I'm I'm so Albert. fucking genius. I'm so genius. <laughs> um but yeah, it's it's a book that is outside of of Albert in a way that um it's it's funny because in especially uh like native English literature, we don't often see books that are written in a close third person perspective that are that kind of that have that kind of critical distance from uh from the nominal uh the nominal narrator like in this kind of close third person it feels for the longest time like we're seeing from his perspective but it really only comes out by the end that like it starts dawning on you of like no i'm actually i'm witnessing the world counter to him and I don't know. It's just, it's this really cool literary trick. Cause it's like, it's so obvious in retrospect, but the moment yeah. it dawned on me, it felt like this really magical. I'm like, Oh, you fucking got me. Like, Oh, I read yeah. a lot. You, you got, you played me. bro. <laughs> so I think the last thing I wanted to bring into mind is Celeste and her relationship and her relationship with um, Satan. So we haven't really introduced our antagonist he shows up at the bar and he does this body swapping trick that causes, he pisses Albert off, like he prods his impatience and, and gets him drunk. And and then he convinces or, or makes Albert try to stab him and he swaps bodies so that when Albert is slashing Celeste's face, Albert is inside Celeste's body and he feels the pain and horror. But on the flip side, Celeste gets a taste of agency and power and of course this reversal is not a gender reversal by accident right it gives celeste a woman who has been um, under the control of men mostly because she's a waitress right and she kind of like indulges in their desires and she has to be at their beck and call and so on but also her personal life is described where she moves from relationship to relationship um, with men who don't love her and simply want her for her body and, and, and to control her because she's so... And and if you've ever been at a bar, you've seen these men who are attracted to the waitresses because they seem like unruly creatures and they want to dominate them. And, and in general, who mystify women as like these uncontrollable manic pixie girls, right? Which you can then um, bend to your will. And, and when she slices um, her face, but from her from Albert's perspective, right? She gets a feeling of the domination and violence that men inflict on women. And after that, her first um instinct is to find a relationship. And she supposedly finally finds a a good man. And this is a genius thing that um uh Catling does 
is that figure of the good man, right? Like the man who just wants to take care of her. By the way, played by um, Alex Lothar, who's a great actor. He was in The End of the Fucking World and in Andal. And, uh, and uh, uh, in, he played young Alan Turing in The Imitation Game. Um, really good um, actor. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm saying this is his office. Irwig was uh, uh, made into a movie in 2021. Um, yeah. I, I got to track that down. That's... That's I yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like I feel like we did and I just like it just sorry, it sorry, feels so largely fucking unfilmable. I'm I'm more yeah. I'm more impressed that, that someone was like, you know what? I'm fucking doing it. I'm doing this. Yeah, so it was it was um made into a movie. I, I'm probably going to mispronounce this last name. I'm very sorry. Lucille Haji Halilovich. That's my best effort. Um Who's a filmmaker? She has like a bunch of films, four films, including Earwig. Uh, oh no, she has way more. That's just the stuff that she, I think, made. Anyway, um, she um, wrote the screenplay and uh, Kathleen was involved. This was before um, his death. It was released in 2021. And in that movie, the, the person who plays the, the good, quote-unquote, man is Alex Lothar, which is a really good um, casting call. And he is supposedly going to rescue um, Celeste and take her out to the country, to the mansion, where, which his mother, obviously meaningful, right, who had recently died, had left him. He's going to take um, Celeste there, and he's going to solve all of our problems. But it comes to um, light very quickly that he is drugging Celeste. Um, and this, this all takes place in... Um, Turn of the century, right? So after World War One. So think about you know using um, Valium as like a day day to day painkiller, right? All of the weird shit they did, like using cocaine as as a as a medicine, and shit like that. So he drugs her with these like quaaludes or whatever. All this like really powerful barbiturate, um, and he is basically going to siphon her in this mansion and make her into his mother, like make her make his food and raise his children and all that twisted shit. But this is not the same Celeste. Because, remember, or think about the fact, Satan inherently is, ever since Milton and all that stuff, change. Right? Satan is a catalyst. Everything that Satan touches in the literary world is transformed. So Celeste is, of course, also transformed, just as Mia is, by the way. And she escapes um, this perfect man to go and find and kill Albert. And that is such a brilliant move on Kathleen's side. Like, introducing us to this figure of a man. The upstanding guy. All he wants is, you know, he loves women. What do you mean he's sexist? He's not sexist. He's not a misogynist. He loves women. All he wants to do is take care of them and solve the problems and pay for all the expenses and so on. But his motivation is still domination, control, keeping this wild woman. And then, by the way, he's really well written and he's really hard to read because he says stuff like now that she's scarred it's my opportunity because otherwise she would be too pretty for me which is just a horrible thing to think right um and, and it is just one of my favorite parts of this book how Kathleen puts celeste into this situation and then without criticism with applause celebrates her killing albert running away from this guy and killing this misogynistic, violent, dominating, 
awful person um, in the shape of, of Albert. While the devil, who again is not a bad figure, uh, is not evil, um, laughs on from the shadow of Saint Sulpice, which is a nice touch for me because I really like Saint Sulpice. Uh, it has a really nice um, courtyard that I go to when, whenever I visit Paris. Um, so it was really nice for him to place uh, the devil uh, there. And it's just such a, um, a pleasing end to Celeste's uh, storyline and such a cathartic way to end the book. And I really like the subtlety of his criticism around, quote-unquote, good guys. I'm always a sucker for well-deployed, um, well-conceptualized, um, like, satanic figures. Because we are fucking inundated with the worst uh, versions of them that you could ever possibly fucking imagine. So yeah. seeing someone who, and it, knowing his history with um, like esotericism, it's it's absolutely not shocking that he'd have a much more better, much more better, Jesus Christ, I, I, I can speak, a much more better conceptualized image of, uh, of Satan. Um, yeah, I, I think it's also about, it's not just that it's better conceptualized, it's also that it's better executed because it's literally only in the last page that you understand that it's the devil. Yeah. Right? Like, and he does such a, such a good job of mystifying this figure. Like when he's doing the spells that like change their bodies, he screams out words in ancient Greece and in Latin which is really well made. And of course, he appears again. He's the cat. So Mia adopts a cat at some point. And by the way, when she adopts the cat and forms a relationship with the cat, it breaks Albert's hold on her because now she's suddenly not codependent on him because she has the cat. There's also this really disturbing scene of Albert trying to kill the cat. And the cat becomes this like uncatchable, unpressable, boneless sort of entity in his hands. It kind of like twists and squirms as Albert tries to break its neck and he's unable to do so. So when I say this is a horror book, I mean it. It's like really, I wanted to say icky, but I don't think that does it just <laughs> bizarre, eerie, unsettling uh, segments. So it, yeah, I agree with you. that It's a really well-built Satan because it's so subtle, right? Yeah, it's... <sighs> I'm running out of coherent thoughts for it, but it's just this really, I, I really just love seeing his, his mind work. Like there is as this is still as rich with symbolic content, um, as really any of his other works. He just feels a lot freer to be, um, almost unhinged with the plotting. Like he, he can just, I don't know. It was a delight. It, it's yeah. weird because it's like this one's definitely his lightest weight one of the now five of his that I've read. I still haven't read Monkey. Um, but it. Yeah, it's just it feel like feeling like you're watching a master just put it feels the same level of like watching a really great musician just improvise like the reason why people really um, despite their um, contentiousness. Uh, of the fact of being released the number of um prince records we've gotten of like 
basically glorified bootlegs of him just twinkling on a piano or improvising during like uh, uh, sound checks and just going like, Jesus, yeah. you really could, it really did just fucking pour out of you. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> okay. So I think at the end of the day, this is certainly a Brian Catling novel. And I think it does a really good job of like, not that he needs it, but like solidifying his oeuvre, right? His like authorial voice and developing it in really interesting ways that were hinted during the fall, right? Like all this play with light and, and shadow and so on. But here it's it's subtler. It's less like the fall is like being slapped in the face multiple times or hallucinating, being on a trip, right? Whereas Irwig is like listening to jazz, uh, abstract jazz, right? Yeah. It's like hints of meanings, hints of, of, of scenes and scenarios. And it's just a wonderful book, really. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, everything that I've ever read from Catling has been good. Hollow was good. I can't bring myself to do an episode about that because that book makes me depressed. It's a yeah. really, really depressing book. That's um, sort of uh, one of the mountains. So not quite the level of uh, Dahlgren, but that's a mountain that Eden and I have to climb at one point. We've chatted about it where it's like, it's going to be fucking impossible to emotionally get through, but what a fucking yeah. great book. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if you're looking for something unsettling, but is a bit more accessible than Catling's other works, uh, but still is, delicious just the line by line reading is so powerfully satisfying then earwig is definitely um the book for you music to send us off do you mind if i steal this one as well uh i really want to put on uh oh, yeah, that crownland song that you sent me context fearless oh, part fuck one yeah holy <laughs> fuck well so e eden plays a it is it's did it come out on so. friday i'm not sure maybe i just got but, the promo and i'm being an asshole so so eden played a goddamn trick on me i'm about to get on the plane to go visit some family in texas and literally like moments before takeoff he goes oh langdon you should check this song out it's like rush worship and i have barely enough time to frantically download this thing before getting on the plane um <laughs> i wound up listening to fearless part one and part two, which is, um, uh, they're, they're, up, loo they're loosely paraphrasing, um, Cygnus X one where part one is about seven minutes long. And part two is about 18 minutes long. The music like quotes it at various points. It's all, if you're a big rush fan, you'll be like, Oh, this is very fucking deliberate. Um, I have listened to that probably about six to 10 times a day since you sent it to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm fucking obsessed. Yeah. So yeah, the album, the album uh, titled "Fearless" um, is out. Of course, I'm on the the website. There's like a bunch of vinyl options and pressings and uh, t-shirts and shit like that. These guys are like also. So the, the music is is rush for sure. But if you look at the art, it's a it's it reminds me of uh, Tales from the Topographic Oceans, right? Um, yeah, reminds me of of yes <clears throat> shit. So, so these guys really like the the seventies prog, and and to be very clear, they're very um, unapologetic about it, right? Like it's rush. 
it's it's just rush <laughs> like the the compositions will be very familiar to you the vocal style and everything but first of all it has that shine of a well executed homage and and wearing its its uh, passion its heart on its sleeve um and two it, they do um introduce their own unique take on it and and their own ideas and they it sounds more modern as far as production goes and stuff like that um yeah it's good stuff it's really good stuff so we're gonna be playing starlifter fearless part two by crownlands thank you as always for listening and enjoy